Hey friends, I'm Bryant Russ, and in partnership with Christian Schools International, you're listening to Lighting a Fire. I can remember tossing and turning in my bed through the night, just waking up in a fever thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not the guy. I'm not qualified. I'm not. I'm not. And I remember in the stillness of that hearing, the first thing was, it's not about you. Way back in August, I was able to talk with the president of Focus on the Family, Jim Daly, about some of the incredible challenges he faced growing up and how God has used those hardships to shape him into the person he is today. Jim was such a fun and gracious person to chat with, and I can't wait to share the conversation we had with you this morning. Hey, Jim, sometimes we use ACE scores at school, ACE scores being adverse childhood experiences, and we use it as an indicator to say that, that the student who has a high ACE score will likely have some serious challenges later on in their life. <laughs> and as I was reading Finding Home, you're reading your biography, I was doing this informal tally of your ACE scores. Oh, man. You, <laughs> how did I do? <laughs> you did not do well, I have to tell you. In fact, I quit a couple chapters in because it just got too too high. Um, would you tell us, in, in fact, in the, the inside sleeve you have written there, I should be insane or in jail. Can you tell us some of those childhood experiences that you went through? Man, you know, I, I like to be an overachiever, so now I'm bummed out about the A score. <laughs> you know well, what? You uh, very, no, I... very high, so uh, <laughs> Well, you know what? The problem with that, which is so unfortunate, although it's good to get a predictive model of the kids that are in the classroom, I think that's helpful, so you can aim some attention. But I, I do think the, uh, the A score misses one amazing attribute of humanity, and that's our resilience and our ability to overcome those those uh, speed bumps or those mountains that we end up encountering in our lives and that you know that is both human endeavor as well as from my perspective a godly attribute where you're able to embrace Christ and overcome those difficulties etc so you know that that's kind of interesting to me i've been thinking a lot about valleys lately and you know so much is learned when you are down in a valley emotionally spiritually etc and, you know, rising up uh, into Christian leadership over the years, et cetera, I'm so grateful for those struggles that I had mm. because I think they taught me many things, um, hopefully mostly humility of, you know, the roots of that. Where does it come from? Being broken. And I've met a lot of Christian leaders that, from my perspective, you know, and I'm seeing it only through my prism, I get that, but they haven't had um, enough brokenness in their lives. Mm. They've gone from success to success. And in many ways, that's led them to be unhealthy people, in my opinion. But, you know, so valleys, my point is God has a purpose in valleys. And this is where teachers come in. I mean, I, I would honestly tell you those that helped me the most in those young years, uh, whether it was elementary school, junior high or high school, were the teachers in my life who demonstrated kindness and love and encouragement, put an arm around me, whatever it might have been. And that's what I clung to, that they noticed me. And, mm. uh, you know, it, it meant the world to me. Mm. Oh, I love that. For someone not familiar with your autobiography, Finding Home, what were some of those experiences? I know you talk about <laughs> elsewhere about standing under the lights. It was such a vivid image, Jim, of standing under the, the lights on uh, for football on 
on Father Night yeah. and having your name read. And I think the line was, Father Not Present. Uh, talk to us about some of those experiences. Yeah. that Boy, think about that. That'd be a good title of a book, Father Not Present. But, um, you know, for me, the, the quick cut of this, my A score review would be my uh, mom and dad divorced when I was five. I'm the youngest of five kids. Um, I was the accident baby, so to speak. And, and then my mom remarried when I was eight. She died when I was nine. Our stepdad walked out on us the day of the funeral. Mm, uh, wow. I ended up in foster care, the foster father. I'm not sure what all mental issues he was battling with, but he told the social worker I had tried to kill him as a nine-year-old, to which I had to ask her, how, how did I try to kill him? <laughs> you know, because oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, and, uh, and then I moved back in with my bio dad who had struggled with alcoholism. I lived with him for a year. My closest sibling then turned 18. I was 11 and the family decided I shouldn't live with him. They wanted me to tell him. So I had to tell my father, I'm not going to live with you anymore. Mm. Uh, that was really heart-wrenching because there was a special connection I had between my dad and I. And, uh, you know, he's, he always somehow communicated, even through his demons, that he loved me, that I was special to him, and I caught it. And, you know, somebody said the other day, the world's coming down to those who love their fathers and those who hate their fathers. And that's it's an amazing, profound statement, especially if you come from a place of a father wound. But for me, even though my family was highly dysfunctional, somehow my dad was able to communicate to me in a way I caught it, that he cared about me, even though he couldn't cope as an adult and all his stuff. But it's so critical that children find that kind of place that, that they can feel someone believes in them. Even with all the detriments, you know, one of the things that I'm so excited about is how God wires children. We have this unrelenting love for our, for our, uh, failed parents, you know, our, our human <laughs> parents that aren't perfect people. And, you know, I did something the other day, I was on a program and I was saying, we got to let dads off the hook. And, uh, it was a father's program. And I said, you know, we try hard, we do our best, but it, to some degree, especially in Christian homes, those kids that are growing up with imperfect fathers, they just need to relax and say, dad, I love you. Despite your shortcomings and we're all going to have them. And, you know, for me, it, 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 that was a kind of really critical foundation for me that I did have that. My oldest brother and my father fought physically. He was a big kid. My dad is six, five. My brother is six, five. And when he's 14 or 15, the two of them had fistfights. I never got spanked by my dad. I mean, that's the kind of the bizarreness of what we encountered as a family. And, uh, and so anyway, life goes on. I then moved in with my brother. I, uh, he had married his, actually his 16 year old girlfriend. He was 18 or 19. And, uh, it, that was awkward in every way. They ended up divorcing a couple of years later. I lived with my brother as a, as a swinging single. <laughs> and, then, mm. and then my brother remarried, but all through high school, I remember Friday night, you know, I played football. I was the quarterback and I'd say to my brother on the way out the door with my, you know, my gear packed, I'd say, Hey, what time you want me in tonight? And he'd say, I don't know, two or three. And I'd yell back at, <laughs> oh, I seriously would yell back. I'll try to stay out that late as <laughs> if it was some kind of badge of honor. But, you know, normally I'm an, I'm a morning person, so I'd be home by 11. <laughs> but, uh, but that was the kind of environment that I had. I had no boundaries. Mm. And, you know, that's, that's life. So, 
Jim, hearing you describe this, no offense intended, but you, you're maybe the least likely guy to be currently leading a Christian organization and one that seeks to equip families to thrive. How did that happen? How did you get from all these adverse <laughs> childhood experiences to being someone who's so deeply passionate about not just your faith, but also helping families thrive? Brian, it was so funny when I'm walking down the hall with Dr. Dobson, he grabs my arm and says, hey, I want you to take focus over after I'm done. And I, I mean, my jaw went down because I'm like, no, <laughs> it was so funny. I mean, I got home that night and I told my wife, Jean, I came through the garage door, you know, and into the house. And I said, wow, Dr. Dobson wants me to take over focus on the family. And I never forget she was doing the dishes. You know, she's putting dishes in the dishwasher and she just stopped and looked at me and she went, who would have thunk it? <laughs> And that, that was the best statement, the most precise statement, because, yeah, who would have thunk it? And I think, you know, God's plans for us are rarely what we plan for ourselves, right? And I think even looking back in those moments before I was installed, as they called it, as the, uh, the president of Focus, I can remember tossing and turning in my bed through the night, just waking up in a fever thinking, oh my goodness, Lord, I can't do this. I'm not the guy. I'm not qualified. I'm not, I'm not, and just go through it all. And I remember in the stillness of that hearing, you know, God's voice in my spirit, just saying, <laughs> the first thing was, it's not about you. Can you imagine that? I was thinking mm -hmm. all of the things and I, I, what I felt in my heart was, it's not about you. It's about walking with me in this. And that settled me down and that really put it to rest for me. But the irony was, you know, Dr. Dobson was a PhD from University of Southern Cal in child development. And then for me, it was like the Lord was saying, I'm going to use your experiences because I provided for you almost every family type to live in. And I thought about mm -hmm. that. I went, okay, a normal dysfunctional home, uh, you know, my alcoholic father and mom, and then a stepdad, and then a foster family. And I lived with my mom as a single parent mom. And then after foster care, I lived with my dad for a year as a single parent dad. And then I moved in with my sibling and lived with my brother Dave through high school. So with the exception of living with a grandparent, I had almost every living arrangement you could have in mm, the wow. normal course of a family. And the Lord just kind of breathed into me that I gave you those experiences for a purpose. And wow, when I caught that, that's what gave me that passion that born out of my pain truly was the passion to try mm -hmm. to help other families stay together, help other marriages, help other parents. And Jim, in that sense, who better to lead focus in the sense that here you are having experienced just about every challenge under the sun when it comes to family, who better to lead an organization focused on the family? That's who I want to hear from, right? I want to hear from the guy who's had these challenges, not the person who's come from just some sort of perfect family environment. No, and I appreciate that. And I think, <clears throat> you know, the Lord has a purpose for the way things should go in that moment. And again, God use, uses the uniquenesses that he gives each of us for the purpose that he designed us for. And I, I'm just mm, a big amen. believer in that. And I think that's why circumstances that you go through in your life, uh, if we could see them more as an opportunity to grow then you know, some kind of something that's keeping us down or that's hurting mm -hmm. us, 
uh, that's a far better way to go. And I think even as a child, I caught that. Um, I was a very positive kid, even in all that mayhem. And I was optimistic. And, you know, I always had a sense that other kids were worse off than me. I knew about the kid that was being beaten. I knew about that other kid that maybe his dad was doing things to him he shouldn't be doing. And I, I just always felt like, man, it's amazing how blessed I am. <laughs> Even though my whole oh, world was incredible. falling apart, but you know, <laughs> it just felt like there are people that are in far worse situations than me and I need to hmm. do something to recognize that. So it, it's just, it was wonderful that the Lord allowed me to do that. Even when the five of us kids get together that are, you know, we're all grown now, the daily family, we're all, I think I'm the youngest and I'm in my fifties and the rest of my siblings are in their sixties. And uh, we say to each other that if we had to go through the same difficulty, because all of us have become Christians over about a 30 year period. Wow. And that's the faithfulness of God. And my mom accepted mm. Christ the day before she died. We had wonderful neighbors. They were the hopes, H-O-P-E, no kidding. And uh, the mm. hopes used to take us to church on Christmas and Easter and got to know my mom and kind of became her backstop as a single parent mom. And uh, they just looked after her. And when she was dying of cancer, when I was nine, they went to her hospital bed and just said, Jan, you need to know Jesus as your savior. And she was more than willing. I mean, she she was a, a wonderful person. She had a great sense of humor and she was terrific at teaching us the golden rule and treat others the way you want to be treated. She had those foundational truths in her heart. She just had never made a commitment to Christ. So it was mm -hmm. great that she did the day before she died and and, uh, and God's faithfulness to say, I think to her in her quiet hospital bed as she was dying, I'll take care of the children. And all mm. five of us have become believers in Jesus. Wow. So what's your story? How did you meet Jesus and become a follower? This is particularly for your audience. I want people to lean in, the teachers. And I mentioned this, but teachers were, and it even tears me up thinking about it, they were profoundly important in my life. You know, if you can imagine no structure going on, I mean, you get home, it's chaos, whatever it might be. Yeah. And I lived it. I mean, it, it just never ended from kindergarten to 12th grade. It was just constant chaos. And I had a handful of teachers that, you know, I was a bit of a goofball. I, you know, I was a bit talkative in class. Uh, I would have, in fact, my senior year, one of my teachers I interrupted with one-liners pretty consistently and, you know, they were funny and the class would laugh and my one, she was my English teacher and she said, Jim, you know what I'd like to do rather than send you to the principal, the last day of school is only a couple of months off. I want you to take the entire class and do a monologue like Johnny Carson or something. Would you be willing to do that? I said, absolutely. Oh, that's <laughs> I, awesome. and, and, but, but the, the point of it was teachers helped me deeply desperately, uh, particularly my football coach, my PE coach, Paul Morrow. He's the one that sponsored me to go to a fellowship, of Christian athletes camp. I'm like, I can't pay for that. I have no money. He goes, I'll take care of it. Joyce and I will take care of it. His wife. I was like, wow. Okay. I'll go. Went to Point Loma in Southern California. And, uh, and there was a professional athlete. He played quarterback for the chargers, I think. And this guy got down there and said, Hey, have men let you down? Has your stepfather let you down? Has your father let you down? I'm going, this guy's talking to me. Mm, wow. And, uh, he just said, I'll introduce you to someone who will never let you down. So at 15, I gave my life to Christ and I wobbled. Oh my goodness. You know, I was still the quarterback of the football team and all that good stuff. So parties were important to me, but, um, you know, it, over the course of about seven years, I really, the Lord beautifully 
corrected me, chastised me, encouraged me, and put the right people in my life to kind of get the kinks worked out and my commitment to become more solid and less duplicitous. And I'll forever be grateful to those teachers mm-hmm. that, you know, I remember asking Paul Morrow, that football coach, because he went on to be one of the winningest, the winningest coach in Arizona history. I think he won 389 football games, 13 state championships. I said, Paul, I mean, are they going to fire you because you talk to your kids about Christ? And he said, no, there's no way I win too many football games. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, isn't that awesome? Yeah, that he did his job with such excellence that he got a lot of leeway to help boys particularly <laughs> become men. And he did. He helped me become a man. I remember I was dogging it my sophomore year, and he grabbed my face mask, and he said, if you're going to lead this team, then you better demonstrate how to lead. And that means you win the wind sprints. You don't dog mm. them. You're setting the tone for the rest of the team. Well, man, don't you think that created a, a work attitude in me that helped me throughout my career uh, before focus and inside focus uh, wow you know how do you set the tone as a person will be the best example you could be Paul Morrow taught me that wow Jim how do you navigate that balance as a teacher I sometimes wonder do I do I challenge here do I do I demand more from a student here or do I use this as an opportunity to demonstrate grace and flexibility with a student how, how do you how do you advice <laughs> on how, how to navigate that? Well, the wisdom because it potentially it, could have backfired, right? When your yeah. coach grabbed it, right? Well, and I'm sure with some young men that did backfire with Coach Morrow. I, I'm quite positive of that. But you know, the the a couple of thoughts come to my mind. The wisdom in what you just asked is yes, yes, and yes. I mean, you 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 as the educator, the teacher, you're going to develop an ability to know which tool in your toolbox needs to be used on this student. If it's mm. that encouragement or that challenge. If it's, uh, you know, grab me by the face mask or pat me on the back. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a teacher develops that wisdom over time and you're going to make mistakes. And actually, you're going to learn probably mostly in those mistakes when it didn't work out right, how to pull the right tool out at the right time. And I think the other thing is we also complicate that process way beyond what mm-hmm. it needs to be. And, you know, the. Nurse Bandy, who was my fourth grade nurse and a teacher, she did both roles. But I was in Mr. Todd's class in fourth grade at Morongo Elementary School. And that's right after my mom died. I moved from Long Beach, California, out to the small desert community with the foster family. And, you know, there was such chaos going on in that place. They had four sons of their own, and they were very unhealthy in many ways. And a lot of that unhealthiness fell on me. I become the, became the brunt of some of their problems. And, uh, you know, and being accused of trying to murder the dad was just bizarre. It didn't happen. There's somebody listening going, well, did you? No, it was all <laughs> fictitious. But I remember going to Mr. Todd's class. And in the middle of classes, we were doing grammar. It's so funny, those memories that are seared into my mind. And hmm. he was teaching grammar, you know, noun, verb, noun, adjective, what have you. And circle this one, use a box around that one. I mean, it's fourth grade. I'm trying to figure out, okay, action means verb. <laughs> and, I'm still you know, trying to figure that out too. Yeah. And I, I just remember getting up, being overwhelmed with the schoolwork because it wasn't where I was at in the Long Beach school. This was different. Being overwhelmed by the home life and all the chaos going on there. And I would just get up in the middle of class and I'd walk out and he would just let me. And I'd sit on a sand hill and cry 
And Mrs. Bandy would come out and put her arm around me. And she said, oh, Jimmy, it's going to be okay. I'm thinking, oh, another adult, stupid person. I mean, honestly, because you're going, you have no idea what's going on in my life. How can you say it's going to be okay? At the same time, another part of me was, this feels so good. I'm so comforted Mm. by her. I mean, I couldn't put it into those words in the fourth grade, but there was a warmth in what she was doing to simply show that she cared. It didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be this recipe of success. It was just putting an arm around me and saying, Jimmy, it's going to be okay, even though I couldn't accept it. But she was right. It was going to be okay. Things were going to work out. And uh, just that simple act of kindness was a beautiful part of my healing. And that's what I would say to the teachers. Just do those simple things. You may not even remember them, but that little student will remember it for a lifetime. Hmm. Oh, Jim, thank you so much for these stories and for your wisdom. Can I ask you, this isn't a normal thing that we do on the show, but but uh, would you be willing to just take a second and pray for both students who are in a similar place to you uh, growing up with all kinds of challenges and also for teachers as we as we attempt, attempt to really love and serve our, our students? Oh, it'd be an honor. Yeah, let me do that. Father, we are so grateful <laughs> for the A score. That score, Lord, that says the world is betting against you. But Lord, you step in and say, wait a minute. Those are the experiences experiences that I want for this child because I have a purpose for this child in the future. Lord, uh, give wisdom to these teachers to be able to nurture that child's inner heart so that they can feel loved, that they can experience joy, that they know peace. And Father, especially in that Christian context where these teachers can talk about your son Jesus and what he did for us and the fact that there is more to life than simply passing a class, that there is more to life than simply being successful, that most importantly, success means having a faith with you and in you, and Lord, that we're able to turn around and give liberally to those who are seeking. Lord, that we can show the fruit of your spirit, that love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, mercy to those around us, and that they might be drawn into the kingdom. And I pray particularly, Lord, again, for these teachers that are being that instrument that you're providing in their lives to notice them, to encourage them, to wrap arms around them. There's nothing more godly than that, Lord. Thank you for allowing these teachers to spread your love through these kids and into these kids' hearts. And I pray that the the harvest, because of what they do, will be so plentiful that you'll smile on their efforts. And we are grateful in Christ's name. Amen. Mm, Amen. Jim Daly, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the show. Uh, Just, I can't wait to share this with our schools, with our audience. I know they're going to be really blessed by it. Oh, Brian, thank you so much for doing it and for what you do as a teacher. Keep loving on those kids. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed today's conversation, make sure you subscribe to the Lighting a Fire podcast so you don't miss an episode. As always, feel free to email me with questions or ideas at bruss, B-R-U-S-S, at hollandchristian.org. In partnership with Christian Schools International, this is Lighting a Fire.